Remember when Jeff Bezos went on 60 Minutes about drone delivery? At the time, I thought that was insane. Eight years ago. Right. Eight years ago. Ain't no drones delivering things. Well, there are drones delivering things. I know, but it's not the way... Like when, when that thing came out eight years ago, it was as if it was around the corner, you know? Can we pause for a second? Even the fact that we have drones, Brian, is remarkable. Drones. Drones are crazy. When I was a kid, we didn't have drones. Well, I was going to say you didn't have color television, but I was like, I don't know. Maybe you did. People vs. Algorithms is a show about patterns in technology, media, and culture. I'm Brian Marcy, and I write the Rebooting newsletter and host a podcast by the same name. Each week, I'm joined by Troy Young, writer of the People vs. Algorithms newsletter and a longtime media exec, and Alex Schleifer of Universal Entities and the former head of design at Airbnb. This week, we're talking about the future of work, but not in the way it is usually discussed. There are innumerable publications covering how we'll work in the future. This is a topic I'm very interested in, and I don't dismiss it as unimportant. It is. Office work is going to increasingly be done not in the office. I believe that. But today, we're going to not talk about the how, but the what of work. And we're going to do it from the lens of our recent obsession with the cascading advances in artificial intelligence. As hardly a day can go by without some new tool being released that makes you say, holy shit. Actually, wait a second. I'm going to let AI take over this intro. Why not? I'm going to try this new tool uh, that we discuss in the show called Lex. So here it goes. Let's, Let's have the robot take over from now. We have seen incredible advances in AI in the past few years, many of them driven by the sheer power of GPUs, which are great at the kinds of matrix operations that are the basis of deep learning. But the thing that has made AI take off is the availability of data, so much data. We're not just talking about the data that Facebook and Google have on us. We're talking about the data that's generated by the billions of devices that are now connected to the internet, from Fitbits to Nest thermostats to the sensors in billions of cars. All of this data is being collected and sorted and analyzed by algorithms. And the results are being used to make decisions about everything from what ads we see to what movies we watch and to who gets a car loan and who doesn't. As the algorithms get better at understanding and using this data, they're gonna get better at making decisions that humans currently make. And this is already happening in many fields, such as, okay, okay, enough, enough, robot. That was actually pretty good and I'm actually a little scared. I mean, this is gonna get much, much better and very quickly. Inevitably, as humans, particularly if you're a human who who types words and, say, hosts podcasts for a living, we fear machines replacing us. But the end result is usually augmentation and the creation of new roles that replace those that are largely taken over by the machines. So let's get to the discussion. So, Troy, it feels like each week a new door opens with AI. I think you were prescient on this one. Maybe not so much on the, the Web3 stuff. But for me, I was I was intrigued this week and a bit unsettled when I was I just saw the the demo video of Lex, which is a new AI writing assistant. I guess 
you could call it, that was weirdly produced by Every, the email newsletter collective. I'm interested in the backstory there. I've only seen the demo, but you know, basically, you're you're typing your your text, and if you're out of ideas, you're stuck. You can hit like plus plus, and the AI will spit out like three paragraphs. It seems to do a very nice job on headlines and stuff. So it definitely feels like we're at this moment where AI, which has always been lurking there, has all of a sudden become everywhere. I think Lex is, is kind of cool because it's probably not as sophisticated. Wasn't the sort of front runner there called Jasper? Well, and- Jasper raised, I think, $150 million this week, too, at a $1.5 billion valuation. It's been around for 18 months. I'm getting flashbacks to previous manias. Right. Well, if I was to pull something out of the Lex thing, I would say that you know these open source, uh, like the ability to plug a large language model into another system, in this case, a kind of probably a uh, open source uh, editing uh, program, uh, enabled those guys to really quickly create their own, you know, kind of AI-assisted editorial interface, which is if you were building a CMS right now, I mean, there's been, you know, we've talked about this and iterated around this for a long time, in 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 the design of editorial systems where for example you would suggest you know search keywords to go after or try to you know provide you know imagery from a library from the web or whatever based on analysis of the content that you've written or you know just all kinds of ways that you can help an an editor to be more uh, productive and so here they've taken, you know, an AI, uh, uh, sort of, an, you know, plugging in an AI model to uh, a, a, an editorial interf- or a content creation interface and then are, are iterating on how to make it work more effectively. I thought the demo was cool. The example that, that, uh, that was used was, you know, you're kind of stuck. You don't know where to take something. You basically ask, you know, the, the AI engine for you know, some help. And uh, that strikes me as being useful. But I thought that the more interesting demo, Brian, was the runway demo that I shared with you guys, mm-hmm. which showed a video editor and it was a bug, a, a beetle or something on a leaf. And you use the interface to highlight the beetle and it replaces it with any number of other creatures. And so basically you're seeing these really incredible video editing tools that assist you in making kind of anything you want. So, you know, you have a person walking in the foreground, you change out the background to something generative, whether you want the person walking in grass or in a forest or on the surface of a moon or whatever. And you can just see how really the lines between, you know, what we see as kind of truth and imagery and what is manufactured become incredibly blurry. So Troy, let's talk about winners and losers of an AI era, particularly in media, but not necessarily. Because when any, anytime any of these tools come out, I think a lot of people, maybe it's just me, go to, oh shit, the robots are coming to replace the humans. And in some ways they do, but like 
humans are always needed and they usually direct the tools. Maybe this time they won't. And usually we saw this with programmatic. We talked about this last week, more jobs opened up. Where do you see this going? Like who, who's going to win? Who's going to lose as far as, you know, where you want to be? It would seem to me that roles that were supportive of editorial functions, and we're talking largely a text world here. We can talk about video a little bit more, but things like a copy editor or a photo editor would get, would be under a lot of pressure. So just as a, just, you know, as an individual creator of content, you know, I, I would love to have my stuff copy edited and, you know, tools that support that, which are not hard to imagine are going to come online pretty rapidly. You can see that amping up the ability to add art varies. I see it in a lot of newsletters now, Brian, where people, you know, will put, you can, you can kind of clearly see that it's AI art, but I'm seeing it everywhere. And the most earnest of them credit the, you know, the model or the platform, like this was generated by Midjourney or whatever. So I think that, that, that supporting editorial roles, probably the same in video get put under a lot of pressure. But at the same time, I could speculate that there's a whole bunch of new kind of job titles of the future that emerge. Yeah. Well, let, let's get to the new ones, but I want to, I want to focus on who's going to get replaced first. Sorry, so they always come for the copy editors first. Autocorrect, you have Grammarly. Like You already have tools that can get you not all the way there, but a lot of the way there. And I think it's a classic case of not wanting to be caught in the middle. And there's a lot of support functions in every company. And in media companies, there are a lot of, you know, let's say support functions, but they're not like the the core functions of, of what you're doing. And, and those... You know, you've written a lot about like lean media, and to me, this is this is part of making lean media even leaner. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. Yeah, you, know, and- you already see it. Like Canva gets you like sixty percent of the way there as a designer when it's got mid journey, like uh, you know, plugged in there. You're not going to need a, a designer. You're not going to need a photo editor. You already really don't, and so on and so forth. Right. And, and, and let's just pull back a little bit. I mean, there is a world of tool enabling tools in video, for example, all the way down to how you record something with your phone that didn't exist, you know, several years ago. And there's still a robust, you know, marketplace for people with video talents in editing in you know, shooting and, you know, writing and, in, in, in all of the things it takes to make video. Now, what, what's happened in parallel is the abundance and velocity and, 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 and shape of media has changed. So there's just way more demand for video creators than there ever has been. So the tools made it more efficient and we started making more of them. Our lives became, I suppose, ever more mediated and video became a bigger part of the storytelling vocabulary. And now there's you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of people that are engaged in that type of media creation. So there's new jobs. I suspect here you're going to see a lot of the same, right? Like, are we going to have a new class of role? I love to speculate on job titles of the future, Brian, to jump ahead. But like, you know, you're going to have a model trainer. That will be a role of the future. Someone who's taking a large language model 
and then training it on specific data sets that are unique to the brand or to the creative problem. That is a new title, model trainer. Prompt designer, there are going to be people that are just good at getting good, you know, results out of out of a model and they're going to understand how to write prompts. We're already seeing these kind of goofy marketplace for prompts and stuff like that. I wrote about it a bit last week. Experiential programming, like how you take someone through uh, any type of experience is becoming a bigger part of the, you know, the media world, you know, how you connect all the pieces together. I, I, you know, you sent an article around, I just keep going for a sec on this sort of like, AI generated personality that was, I, I guess, the front end for health supplements or something like that. And and so maybe a job title of the future is like AI scammer, right? Like it's, it's like uh, they use all the tools to build personality driven kind of marketing constructs, right? You're going to see that a lot, you know, these where, you know, how we present a brand is fronted by a person or a persona that is entirely fake. Well, that's the part that I find interesting is, is I, I think that the, all of these things are, are taking place at a different point in time, right? Like it's not when previous innovations took place. We're not just assuming that technology is, is advances are all for the good. We're seeing the downsides and it's, there's a lot of focus on it, whether that's an elite uh, focus or, um, widespread, I'm not sure. But I think that's going to be a, a real hurdle to AI's adoption is that we're in this period, or maybe it's actually going to fuel it even more. We're in this period where governments are far more involved in, in regulation and AI is seen as a critical part of industrial policy uh, by the US and China. And we're already seeing the internet itself cleave into like two tracks with, with China and with the US. I guess there'll be a Russian one. Who knows? So I think that's going to make it pretty interesting in how it develops because a lot of technologies have developed in a very lax and open environment, at least in, in, in the US and, and similar places. And that's not going to be the case with AI because there's too many. There's, it's pretty easy to see the downsides. I want to share a little story that, from a meeting I had yesterday with the CEO of a large grocery chain. And what I was thinking about is what, what becomes the kind of new distribution platform when the old one becomes less relevant? Meaning grocery stores were low margin businesses where you filled up the shelves, you had suppliers, uh, people came in, bought the products, and went went on their way. And you you had in that scenario a whole bunch of roles that existed to enable that physical distribution process, right? So the people that manage the real estate and the people that manage the relationships with suppliers and the pricing people and the people that stock the shelves and the in the checkout clerks and all that. And so now we're seeing all these new hybrids where. You know, Walmart is a company that sells groceries and other products and now bundles it with Paramount and now has a membership program and sells gas. And Amazon similarly has Prime and entertainment and kind of the everything store as well as grocery. And so to me, what I think of as the new distribution 
is what is the thing that replaces the grocery store in the corner that is your relationship with a grocery store? And obviously what it is, is it's software enabled, it's an app on your phone, and in most situations, it's going to be some type of membership structure that entitles you to certain benefits, whether that's free delivery or price discounts or entertainment, that forms the new connective tissue between the consumer and the person that supplies product. Okay, And so this new distribution paradigm is really important. And where I think this gets interesting is, as I look at a grocery store, the thing that struck me in this conversation that the most important thing you could have, guys, and this relates to old job titles versus new job titles, is your data strategy or your data architecture. Because really the whole thing that ties your whole business together is the, the metadata around your SKUs, which is the products that exist on the shelf. You know, everything that you, what's in them, how do you use them? How do you mix them with other things? What are the substitutes? How much are they? All that. The metadata of you, right? You, Brian, you, Alex, which is what, who are you? What do you like? What do you buy? What is your grocery list, right? And potentially the vendor metadata, which is the suppliers of things, craft or a packaged goods company. And all of that is really absolutely vital to creating the system for that kind of company in the future. Because if you have all of that data and the right structure around it, you can deliver to me a product where I either scan an item or put it into my cart and I can understand how to use it. And AI, you know, checks to see if I already have it and replenishes it as necessary. And so the basis of competition, which is primarily distribution, has been totally replaced. And with that, a whole bunch of new jobs are created and a whole bunch of new specialties are created. And I think that I bring that up as an example because it's top of mind for me, but also because it's kind of like the pre-AI, post-AI kind of thing, which is the world shifts and suddenly, you know, some jobs are made irrelevant and new ones that are more curatorial or more about programming or managing a model or, or defining an experience come to the fore. And, you know, we live in a low unemployment world right now. And quite frankly, I think that the great mystery of these, this sort of technological innovation that we've all lived through is it hasn't taken away jobs. It's created new ones. I guess what I wonder is, is what are the skill sets that are going to be most in demand? I mean, we talk about job titles, but like, what are the skills? Because, you know, 10 years ago, we were told we all needed to learn to code, right? And I don't really know if that was good advice, to be honest with you, because like the developers have all been commoditized and particularly it's a global market now and, and they're, you know, top end fine, but like, you know, a lot of just basic development is gone. But like, what are the skill sets? What do you need? Like, what, if you were like advising, like, you know, someone who was about to enter the workforce or preparing to enter the workforce in an era of AI, what, where, what kind of skills are most valuable? I could start to rant about this, but the story begins with two vice presidents in a large corporation meeting and doing absolutely nothing. 
and just saying, why don't you get the other person that reports to you and the person that reports to them to figure out how to do something. And we will have some type of agreement between you and my other colleague that basically we do nothing. We just coordinate shit and ask other people to do things. And everything takes a really long time. And to me, the people that I've always really loved working with get close to the metal really quickly. They're people that, that know how to do things, that really understand how things work. And the reason that I, I start there is because I think that the most powerful people in these modern scenarios understand how the tools work. So the advice that I give my son, who's a musician, is don't think that you're going to have a producer there helping you or someone that knows how to mix something or, or you know, wire, you know, connect your board to your preamp to your, know how the tools work, know how to do things all the way in a kind of, you know, from top to bottom. And I think that it's like m my daughter, who's an analyst at a hedge fund, she knows she needs to have a deep, deep, deep understanding of how to make models in Excel and pivot tables and all that kind of stuff. So to me, the future is maybe not unlike what any great kind of entrepreneur of the past is. It's not just about coding, but it's knowing how to get things done. And knowing how to get things done to me is about being able to use the tools and yeah. understand the line between idea and execution. It's engineering, right? And it's one of the reasons I like Alex, Brian. Like Alex <laughs> wrote the music for our podcast. I think with that stupid thing he has in front of him right now, the little, all the buttons, right? Yeah, like, like I got fan mail about your song. But, but yeah. like Alex is a maker and he makes with all his gadgetry. He's extremely strategic, but he knows how to use the tools. Those are the people that are powerful, I think. Alex? You're the most powerful person now. I, I feel powerful. I wonder though, I, I, a lot of the AI stuff that's coming up right now feels like it's trying to devalue the knowledge of tools, right? At first sight. But I think yeah. once you look into it, you actually just notice that this is a new, more powerful tool, right? If you were uh, really good with a, a handheld screwdriver and now somebody gives you an electric one, you're even better. Right, uh, rather than replaced, I think I think maybe that's the way to look at it. Although you know, if I'm honest with myself, I'm pretty terrified that I'm going to be made redundant any second now. But that's normal. That's just natural. It's like I see the stuff of of the the AI robot writing, and I'm like, oh no, it's going to do newsletters next. Your brilliant wife's response to that was a good one. I like that response. Yeah, she said that they're not going to have taste for a long time, and so she's not concerned about that in her field. And I think that is actually a job that is going to that can never AI can't like you talk. We talked about like flow and stuff like this, and and the importance of understanding how culture moves and. I don't see AI catching up to that because humans are are not they're not wired that way for AI to mimic that. I don't think because the most the most interesting things that happen in culture are people taking like contrarian positions in it and like you don't get that I don't think from from an AI model. Maybe. Yeah, I mean I think you can get the application of you know, existing patterns, like that example of that AI driven kind of home planning tool. I don't know if I shared it, but you can upload your room and it'll give you a, 
you know, French modernist vibe or a Moroccan vibe or whatever. I, you know, th that's just applying existing patterns to something. And I think that's good for a lot of people. That's an application of taste, but the taste existed. Your point is a really good one, which is the sort of disruptive or contrarian thinking around culture or patterns that is really about how we evolve as a, as a, you know, broadly as a cultural society is, is not going to be the domain of machines for a long time. The world never progresses linearly along a path. So self-driving cars fail to acknowledge all of the things that our brains can process instantly. Like, oh, there's a horn going off in the distance, or there's someone coming to the edge of the road that my lidar doesn't see, but I'm processing that as a human being because I understand human behavior, that they may be, you know, someone that's going to walk out on the road or there's a dog or whatever. And, and so those are all cases that make something where you can take no risk or the cost of making a mistake is very high. They make them, you know, very, very difficult. But at the same time, the path of AI applied to the car problem has opened up tons of new opportunities for things like robotics and more predictable, you know, scenarios like how they can, you know, exist in a warehouse, even though that use case is also very complicated. And so I think that the progress is never linear, that that we pick away at problems that have great ambition like cars. I have self-driving in my car. I don't trust it. It's kind of useless. In fact, it freaks me out. But I think that all of this just pushes us forward in new ways. And it's the same thing, if you would permit me to just keep ranting, with like this like meta versus Apple thing, which is is so kind of annoying. Because if people are like, well, the Apple stuff is going to be like all slick and have retina scans and, you know, it will fit on your head more comfortably and Apple's going to do a great job of it. Well, actually, a lot of the problems that are insanely difficult for Meta are going to be insanely and in some ways more difficult for Apple, quite frankly, because there's a lot of sort of uh, software creation that I would argue Meta probably does better than Apple. And what will happen is two players will emerge, not unlike iOS and Android, and they'll play off one another and they'll copy one another. And the market will emerge and exactly what Zuck wants to happen, which is he's the new Android and Apple's the you know new iOS is the scenario that they want. And then there's going to be other focus use cases. One came onto my radar today that I had no idea about, which is this Google thing called Project Starline. Basically, it's Zoom on steroids, right? So it's, it's not a camera representation of the person you're talking to on the other end. It's a fully dimensionalized and kind of rendered 3D view of them that brings high levels of intimacy and the feeling of face-to-face -face interaction which is just, to me, another application of metaverse thinking, right, to human communication, distance working, all that stuff. And you're going to see lots of cases where, you know, that's all uh, born of a bunch of new technologies colliding, including ML, cameras, advances in audio, collide and create all these new use cases but yeah i mean it's chaotic but like i think the way it's marketed is linear so i don't think it's like necessarily a punditry problem it's actually a silicon valley marketing problem right like it i just looked up 
Remember when Jeff Bezos went on 60 Minutes about drone delivery? I thought that was, at the time, I thought that was insane. Eight years ago. Right. Eight years ago. Ain't no drones delivering things. Well, there are drones delivering things. I know, but it's not the way, like when, when that thing came out eight years ago, it was as if it was going to be, it was around the corner, you know? Can we pause for a second? Even the fact that we have fucking drones, Brian, is remarkable. Drones. Drones are crazy. When I was a kid, we didn't have drones. Well, I was going to say you didn't have color television, but I was like, I don't know. Maybe you did. Like when I got my first DJI drone and I was like, oh my God, I can survey the neighborhood. The thing lands on its own. I'm looking at this incredible image off of my, my mobile phone and I'm controlling it. I mean, all the things that make a drone remarkable, just the way it flies. Like Small aside on the drone thing, you know, there's certain like cultures that are really into drones. Like all Eastern Europeans are very into drones and a lot of people in the Middle East are very into drones. Just something I've noticed. Like, I don't know what it is, but when I go to Serbia, like I, I both see drones a lot and like there's a lot of stores like selling drones and like they had like a national incident in which some Kosovar Albanians flew like a drone with the, the greater Albania flag into like the Serbian soccer match like a few years ago and it set off a riot. These are the kind of things that don't happen outside of like Eastern Europe. Just something I thought I'd throw out there. Hmm. Certain people are into drones. I'm into drones. Fun fact. I like a drone. So, I mean, you saw UpClose.com and Web2. Like, do you think this is a comparable boom that is going to happen? And how will it differ is my question. Yeah. Great question, Brian. Yeah, I think this is a big boom, big boom, because the innovation is distributed and because everybody is going to think about, it's basically like an if-then boom, meaning everybody is going to try to apply either cost-saving or experience-enhancing applications of AI technology to their unique business problems. And that's going to create a bunch of wild outcomes. And those wild outcomes are going to be new ways of doing things that save us money, like you know maybe some of the editorial applications that we talked about, certainly tools that help us tell stories more easily and enable more people to do it, ways of uh, helping us gather information or get smarter about things, applications in healthcare, in complex manufacturing. I mean, it, this is a distributed technology boom that is going to affect every single industry. And so how would you, you know, is it analogous to the beginning of the internet where suddenly we could, everybody could publish without any friction and it was free? So I would say yes would be yeah. my answer. But also, there's going to be a big gold rush, right? Like, I mean, the there's going to be so many people that attach AI to like old business plan ideas, and we saw it in Web three, and they're going to go out and they're going to raise a ton of money, and the cycle will repeat itself. And some things will come out of it, and there's going to be a lot of nonsense. And I think that because of where we are, sort of culturally, with a, a distrust of the technology industry, there's going to be a lot a lot of media focus on the nonsense of AI and the dangers. 
I would think. Oh, that's healthy. So that's okay. But, you know, God bless America because it's a new thing to to keep the machine running. <laughs> we all have a role to play. Right. I want to talk real quick about VCs having ghostwriters for their tweets. I don't know if you saw this. Like, you can... Uh, one job that probably is not going to go away, although maybe it will with AI, is you know there are VC tweet ghostwriters out there. Apparently, make a couple hundred thousand dollars a year writing sort of thought leadership kind of tweets for for the venture capitalists. Which I didn't think that they would need that, but I've heard about this before, and apparently it exists. It feeds into that idea of synthetic media in that like. AI is just to me like it's it's just going to further what already is a torrent of this kind of like fake media. There already is a ton of this stuff out there. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I know this. I think it's mostly bullshit. I think that PR that fake tweeting or hiring someone to create content on your behalf so that the world pays attention to you or so you're positioning yourself a certain way is basically just modern PR. It's just that now PR needs to be, you know, more about content, which means that you have to, you know, come up with things to say. So you hire someone to do it. And I think it's silly. And I think it's the kind of incidence of it is overstated. So I don't think it's that interesting, to be honest. <laughs> okay. We actually have a new publication that finally came out. I don't know if you were being bombarded by Twitter ads from Semaphore that Ben Smith could not wait to, to show you what they've been working on. But Semaphore finally debuted. I think it's actually, like I've just started. You can't, you can't understand a product the first day it's out. But I'm glad that there are you know, people taking big swings still in media. They've got $25 million uh, in funding that they've raised. And, you know, they're not going after some small niche or anything like that. They're, they're trying to build a global news platform. Yes. Listen, I, I think those dudes are smart. And I, you know what? I really admire the team and both of them and the aspiration of trying to create a format telling news stories in different ways. I love the global positioning. I think that's smart. I, I think this sort of like post-crypto kind of design jam that they got going is kind of fun, uh, mixed with like the FT. I love the clocks at the top, the analog clocks and the spinning globe. It feels like news. They use editorial illustrations. Um, I think it's cool. And, and, you know, they've also taken cues clearly from a couple of places. Like they label their images as if they're memes. They have this kind of Axios structure, you know, that's to me a little bit less sort of pedantic than the Axios one. They call it semiform. So where, you know, they have the news, which is seemingly objective, and then the author's view, and then the counterpoint, and then kind of the view from the ground. I love that. You know who this guy, I don't, I don't know much about him, although I'm a big fan of what Vox has done with video broadly. Uh, Joe Posner. And I really admire it. Yeah. And Joe, Joe's their video guy. And I, I watched their intro video that he sort of hems and, you know, he, he tells the story of Semaphore in a nice way. I'm, fa I'm a fan of this thing. And 
Um, I also think it ties to another news item this week. So Google is also seemingly deprioritizing AMP. Yeah. Both of which were ways of kind of pulling, you know, the news world into their walled gardens under the auspices of removing friction, making it easier for users, providing a more templated kind of elegant experience, all of which, however, if you're on the publishing side as I was, took away your ability to create a brand, manage yield, and build your own experience. And so fast forward to Semaphore, and what you're seeing is a new model emerge, which is you control the brand, uh, the distribution is largely driven by a, an, you know, an open format and protocol in email. It works well on the web. It's dramatically simplified from much of what we've done in the past. God help them if they ever start to put floating video players everywhere. I think that would be a massive tragedy and affront to humanity. And I've had my issues with Ben in the past, but I that's true. I think he's wicked smart and good on him. Good on those guys for building this. Yeah, I think it's interesting to to see how I don't know how a brand like this is built now versus I mean it's not that different than I think if this if this came out like five, seven years ago. Maybe a little bit more like the meme stuff and whatnot. But you know, they're not coming out with with some proprietary CMS or anything like that. There's some tech behind it, but it's not it's not the big selling point i feel like yeah they elevate the voices but the brand is still front and center semaphore you know i'll get used to it it sounds like dinosaur or something like a infection or something i don't know what i i don't know about the name but it doesn't really matter the the name doesn't make the person if you look you know it's what one of the interesting things is I was looking at the masthead and you know there's a lot of buzzfeed people and there's a lot of good people from 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 the news world and what you see is, you know, like what happened, how do you contrast what happened to BuzzFeed versus this new articulation of, you know, kind of, of, of a media brand and news gathering and all of that. And you see how important, you know, brand and packaging and, uh, and uh, really thinking through all the details, how important that is and how... You know, in some ways, BuzzFeed got off to an amazing start with news, but but it just couldn't sustain. Okay. Final thing, and uh, unfortunately, we have to discuss this, Troy, is Yi, I guess I didn't even know he, he gave up on the Kanye thing. I still call him Kanye, which is, should be Ye. Is it Ye? No. Ye now, it, apparently he's buying Parler. I guess the new thing for super rich people, I don't think, I don't think Ye is uh, a billionaire, but is to have their own social platforms. What is going on here? Well, the guy's clearly unstable. It's not going to work. You know, it, there will be kind of identity-based social networks that have more kind of point of view, but I don't know how many people want to be part of a social network, especially one that has the past that, that, that this one has. I do understand the tension in the system around social networks acting as God and sort of, you know, banning people for life and the need, you know, the internet will always root around stuff like that and find new ways for people to, to get their points of view out. But this one feels just like a disaster from the beginning. But he, I don't know, like he was like complaining, like, is there a problem of like Yi getting his message out? I mean, if anything, there's too many opportunities he has to speak 
judging from some of his latest commentary, which is it's just straight anti-Semitic. So I don't, I'm not obviously a psych, psychological professional, but I wouldn't be surprised if in a few years uh, down the line that we're looking at this particular instance very differently because the guys had, you know, breakdowns over the years and stuff like this. And it, it looks pretty clear that like he's going through some stuff. Yeah, I think it's going to be a disaster. And, you know, social networks work better when they're neutral and they're a broad platform for many people to connect and contribute. This one is going to attract a fringe constituency and will continue to... The technology is, to me, commodity. So it's the idea that matters. And I just don't know who wants to be part of this world. It, it, it doesn't make sense to me. Just like no one wants to be part of Truth Social, right? I mean, I think there will be room for people to to create, like I said, niche, you know, social networks that cater to different constituencies. But this is kind of DOA in my mind. Yeah, I agree. I hope he didn't pay too much. <laughs> yeah, I would hate for Kanye to lose money. Let's get to good product. Good product. Good product. this one, I thought we could have a bit of fun together. What I'll do with this one is I will start to describe it. And if you guys know what I'm talking about, please chime in. Okay. So I'll give you a bunch of clues and then we'll, we'll get to the product. Oh God. Oh God. Yes. So it's dice, but more fun, uh, but rooted in, in, in like, you know, dice of antiquity. It's, it's about 5,000 years old. Uh, they found sets of it in King Tut's tomb. Uh, Caligula was a noted cheater, which is unsurprising. The Crusaders caught the fever and spread it to different parts of the world. Backgammon. Uh, boom! You got it. Nice. Getting uh, into backgammon. Is this? Did you do this like in the no, down the streets in Brooklyn? <laughs> I play it all the time. I love it. I think it's a great game, and it's obviously a great game because of its unique mix of luck and skill people people that suck at it will say things like oh it's all luck but it's definitely not all luck there's a lot of skill in backgammon um it's a great game because games that have a fair dollop of of luck make for friendly gameplay so you can engage lots of people in it and if you're better at it you'll win more often it was interesting to me that uh the catholics uh, uh you know outlawed it and they used to burn burn the boards in the 16th century, yeah. And then, interestingly, to hide the boards from the Catholics, they made them foldable, and they made them look like books so the church couldn't find them. And that kind of design decision persists to this day, where you have the foldable boards. Um, you can always get better at it. There's tournaments. The New Yorker wrote this brilliant thing about a guy who spent a couple of years trying to play a game of backgammon that would... You know, so he could play like professional backgammon players. Yeah, it's a great game. I love that game. Yeah, you'd have to be really. I also love the forum factor of it. You'd have to be really into backgammon to continue playing when they were like immolating people for playing it. Like I can't. Like that's real dedication. There's, I would just. There's. I would just do something else. There's something about backgammon that also allows you to play the game while having a conversation and having a drink. I don't know. It's just yeah. simple enough. We play it all the time in in Cyprus. It's got a huge, huge uh, fan base in the Middle East, right? 
a lot of people play it there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I grew up playing it. I miss it. Every time every time I try to get people in America to play it, they say it's boring. Hmm. I don't know why. You should come over. We'll play it. How long does it last? Last 15 minutes? It's quick. Oh. 15 minutes, yeah. All right, let's leave it there. We got to find a currywurst. All right. Great to see you guys. <laughs> Big thanks to Troy Alex and our podcast editor, Jay Sparks of Pod Help Us. A reminder, please do send me your feedback on the show. You can email me at bmarsi at gmail.com. And to leave the show a rating on Apple and Spotify. And if you're using Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review there. Hope it's nice. And I hope the ratings are five stars. Bye.